Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Randy. It's great to have you with us today. If you're a guest, it's awesome to have you and our time with us together. Uh, here we are, uh, two days before the election, right? And uh, my, my, what a, what a time we've had. What a year and a half we've had. And um, I want to—I know a lot of people are here, the sky is going to fall and all these things, but let me tell you a prediction for Wednesday morning. The sun's going to come up, the Lord's going to be on His throne. That's all I can predict. Beyond that, I don't know. But we need to rest in that. We need to have peace on that. God is in control. You know, any of the people, the world powers, they're not going to do anything that God doesn't allow them to do. So He is in control. Let's trust Him above anyone and everyone. You know, we're in a uh, series now. We've been here a couple of weeks talking about living the dream. And uh, that's something that we all long to do. We want to, we want to live the dream. I mean, sometimes we say that sarcastically, maybe when someone asks us how we're doing, but, but we really do live the dream in America. Uh, well, last week, we talked about the fact how that all of us, even the average person or even people with lower income, live it better than 99% of the people on this earth that we are so incredibly blessed, but we oftentimes have too much, and when we have too much, we take it for granted, and we want more, and we don't use it wisely. And so we've been talking for a few weeks about how to do that, how to live the dream, truly live the dream. And uh, last week, we talked about gratitude. We said it all begins with acknowledging where everything that we have comes from, from our Heavenly Father, that He is the provider of all, that we need to be grateful to Him, we need to respond to Him, give Him uh, thanks Uh, and praise for what he has given to us. And we used a guy last week um, named Howard Hughes, how that he was a guy who had so much, but he always wanted more, and he lived a miserable life. I want to tell you about another guy, another wealthy guy. I had not really heard of this guy, but he does have some local ties. His name uh, is Nelson Bunker Hunt. Now, Hunt was from, he's a Texan, so he was big, a big Texan, a picture of a big oil guy in your mind. And uh, he, in fact, uh, started a company called Placid Oil, which was one of the largest independent oil companies out there. But he went on as well to go to uh, Libya and North Africa and uh, was involved in discovery and development of the oil fields in those other countries. So he was very wealthy, as you can imagine. He wanted to race horses, so he came to the uh, central Kentucky. He bought 8,000 acres of bluegrass farms. I mean, that is a lot of land. Here, and you all know what it is if you tried to buy any, an acre, you know what it is. Imagine 8,000, not in one lot, but in several different farms, bluegrass farms. And he did well. He had very uh, quality animals, 158 stake winners, 25 champions. But what set him apart in some ways is that Mr. Hunt was a Christian as well. He was very involved in conservative causes. He even funded a movie, the Jesus movie. Maybe you've heard of that. It's been shown all over the world. And so he had a part of, of funding that, so he did some really good things. But he was not content with his wealth. And so he and his brothers decided that they were going to corner the market on silver in the entire world. And so they collected together over a, a very short time one-third of all the silver in the world, and they began to manipulate the market. In fact, in less than a year, they made about $4 billion. If you can imagine, in the silver market, it went from almost worthless to just very expensive because they were manipulating the price on that. But then the U.S. government began to see what these guys were doing, and they stepped in. And on Silver Thursday, January the 7th, 1980, they dumped a bunch of silver into the market, and it just plummeted, and they almost went bankrupt. But they did survive financially, and uh, their, their, their toes were a little bit stepped on, and so they stepped back, and it seemed like for the rest of their time they were, they were a little more contented. 
But, but as I read that story, and many more like them, I'm just like, what is it about wealth that creates so much discontent? Because most of us believe that if I just had more, I would be good. If I just had a little bit more, I would be content, and every, all of my needs would be taken care of. Well, a lot of wise people have discovered that is not the case. In fact, Solomon in the Old Testament, he was the wealthiest man who ever lived. We know him as the wisest man, but because he was wise, God blessed him with wealth as well. He had everything that any of us could imagine would provide us happiness, but he never was content. And near the end of his life, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And in that book, he wrote a phrase and repeated it several times in saying that everything is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Over and over, he made that statement about life, even though he had in, uh, everything we could imagine. Why? Because he had too much. He had too much wealth. He had too much wisdom. He had too much wine, too much work, too many women. He had it all, but it was too much. And this is what he wrote in Ecclesiastes 5. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? I mean, you talk about wisdom. This is where his wisdom kicks in. But people who love wealth, you will never get enough. You'll never reach that magical point where you'll say, okay, that's enough. And the more you have, the more your, your desire, the more your appetite increases until finally you come to the place in life where there is no joy in accumulation. There's no joy in spending it. And all you can do is look at it. Just feast your eyes on it, he says. That's all you can do. And Solomon knew because he had this insatiable desire for more, and he never learned to be content. You know, in our world today, we, we call people the haves and the have-nots. I think it's interesting we do that because even though we have more than 99%, many of us would place ourselves in the have-nots as we compare ourselves to somebody who has more. But the real have-not, the real losers in life are the people who never learn ever to be content with anything never finding contentment in life. Now, Jesus dealt with this as well. In fact, uh, he told a lot of mon uh, parables about money. He talked about it a lot because he knew that it was always on people's mind. And in Luke chapter 12, he tells the story about a wealthy farmer, a man maybe like uh, Nelson Hunt uh, himself, uh, Nelson Bunker Hunt. And uh, this is the story of this wealthy man. He said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Now, here is a guy that, that Jesus is very critical of, not because he was successful, not because he was wealthy, not because he was a good farmer, but because this man had two very serious problems. Number one, he never saw beyond his own life. You talk about selfish. This guy was very selfish. When he was blessed, Instead of being content that his barns were full, not just for the coming winter, but for many years, the barns that he had were, were full. He was not content. He tore those barns down, and he built bigger barns. Not only was he not aware of 
of other people's lives, but he also he never saw beyond this life because seemingly what happens is he tears his barns down. He quickly has new barns built. They are filled up. Everything is great. At the end of the day, when all the barns are complete, all the crops are in, he sets back on the front porch and reviews all of this, and he dies right there. And he didn't get the chance to enjoy any of it for even a moment. And Jesus said to him, you are a fool. Why? Because it is foolish to live life pursuing more and more, selfishly hoarding what we have, never being content. So if we're going to live the dream, truly live the dream, we have got to escape the attitude of this world, the greed that says we have to have more, and we have to be content right where we are. That's what Jesus taught. He taught contentment. He taught gratitude. He taught contentment. Now, the Apostle Paul picks up this theme as well. Paul's an amazing man. He was able to find joy and contentment even in the most difficult times of life. Some of us may say, well, we're content when things are going well, but when things are falling apart, it's hard to be happy and they're content. And so when Paul writes this letter, we're going to read in a moment from uh, the book of Philippians, when he writes this letter to the church of Philippi, he is sitting in a Roman prison. Now, most of us would not say that being in prison is a very comfortable place, especially in that day. Whoever's in prison normally wants out. It's hard to be content in prison, but Paul was content. This is what he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. Now, if you look at the life of Paul, Paul had once been very wealthy. In the role that he played, he was a religious leader. He was a very wealthy man. He was also a powerful man. He was also very well known. He had everything in life. But when Jesus came and revealed himself to him and struck him blind, and then he you know, received the healing from his blindness, Paul gave up all of that to follow Jesus. He left everything behind. Some say that he lost, lost all of his wealth that his, his family probably broke up. If, if he was married, his, his wife may have abandoned him. His children, his family probably had no connections except other Christians. He lost his place. He had to now run and hide from the very people he once was peers with. They were trying to kill him. And he had given up all these things, and yet Paul says, I've never felt more contented in life than right now. Why? Because he had learned to be content whatever the circumstances were and in any and every situation. And what does he say the secret is? The last statement in that scripture I read, Paul says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, Paul didn't have this superhuman ability to be content because more than likely before he gave his life to Christ, he wasn't content at all. He, he wanted more and more. In fact, there was this longing inside of him that he had, we'll talk about that in a few moments, this longing, longing uh, for something that he even though he seemed to have it all, he was still missing. Paul wasn't born content, but now he had found it. He had lost everything that he had, and yet he had no resentment. You know, what I've noticed in life is that many times when people have had a lot and then they lose it all, they're very resentful toward God. They're very bitter toward God. They have a hard time forgiving God for letting it happen. They have a hard time finding joy in life when they've lost so much. But Paul had lost incredibly amount 
but he has no resentment. In fact, he's content now and he never was before. And he says, why? Because I've learned the secret. I've learned a secret of being content. You know, that whole idea of a secret means that this is mysterious. This isn't obvious to everybody. And the secret is, is that when he gave his life to Christ, the transformation of Jesus Christ came in and brought a totally new person to him. That God changed him from the inside. That's the secret of it. Robert, Robin Meyer says, contentment is not just an easy, peaceful feeling or a way to rationalize laziness. It is a deep, easy-breathing wisdom that knows who can, what can and what can't be changed, and more importantly, knows what to do and when to wait. The contented person watches the world closely but does not stare it down. They enjoy things rather than trying to possess them or straighten them out. You know, maybe in this world you have plenty of things but your life is spent trying to control them and the people in your life. You're trying to make it all happen, and you think if I could ever get control of things, then I would be content. I would be happy. I've got these things that I long for, but they're just not in their rightful place, in the right order as I want them to be. And that's a horrible way to live life, isn't it? It really is. Always pursuing that, but never being able to even see or maybe to touch that kind of happiness or satisfaction. Now, in this verse that I read a few moments ago, last verse, it's oftentimes misused a little bit to say that whatever we want to do, we can do it with Christ's help. I've used that. You probably have as well. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's what it says. But that's not really the context. The context, if you look at it, it comes immediately after this idea about contentment. And really the context is that it's about learning to be content with Christ's help because that's so hard. Because it's not simple. You can't do that on your own. Just be content. We have to have Christ's help to enable us to find that kind of contentment there. Now, Paul goes on to say, um, maybe the secret is, is in the previous verses, because this is how he, he tells us that we can find that kind of contentment. It's in verses 8 and 9 of the same chapter. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So what Paul says, I want you to identify the things in life that, are, that, that you're wealthy in, the things that are excellent and true and noble and pure and right and lovely. All of those things in your life, that's what you think about. He says, you think about such things. Because right thinking leads to right living. It all begins in the mind. You're never going to get all the pieces in their right place and everything that you want externally so that then you'll feel right and you'll think right. You think right first, and then right thinking leads to right living. You know, I think the problem goes back to a statement that we made last week when we began this series, and that is that we have too much, and when we have too much, we take too much for granted. And that really is true in life for all of us, because once we have that, we take it for granted and we want more. We want more because life is basically composed of us getting more new things, additional things. Now, thinking back over the years, have you ever noticed that all the things that we once considered to be luxuries are now necessities? I mean, think about that, really. Back in many years ago, several years ago, having a car was a luxury, not everybody had a car, let alone two or three cars in their garage. People just didn't have that. Can you imagine what life would be like without a car? That's a necessity to us, right? Uh, 
you know, beyond that, or maybe around the same time, many people didn't have refrigerators. Let yours go out for one day, and you see what it's like not to have a refrigerator, right? Or washing machines, their own washing machine. Some of you remember when you didn't have air conditioning in your home. I mean, not that it wasn't working, you just didn't have it. We grew up in a home without air conditioning. We can't imagine, you know, not having that now. Or how about a TV? Or how about a color TV? How about a flat screen TV? You throw your big old thing away, chunky one, and get you a flat screen, right? You got to have that. How about a microwave? How about a phone? How about a cell phone? To the point now that we're appointed at a place in life where you got to have a smartphone with a data plan, that's a necessity in life, right? We all laugh because it's exactly true. The, the thing is, we're never content. I'm not saying we ought to get, you know, be Amish or anything, but I'm just saying we need to recognize that there's a greed inside of us that every time something comes along, we think we have to have it. And so much so that the sociologists have, have seriously discovered a condition called FOMO. You've heard of that, the fear of missing out. That's what FOMO is. Now, you can be educated, fear of missing out. Oh, yeah. Uh, that is, you are afraid that other people have something that you don't. And you're going to be looked down upon because you don't have that in life. When, when luxuries become necessities in our life, and we always want more and more, there's a problem, isn't it? And we're never content where we are. Well, let me tell you about another wealthy guy. This one has a lot better story. This guy's a minister. His name is Rick Warren. You've probably heard of him. He uh, pastors a church in California, Saddleback Church, a beautiful place and a large church, 20,000 people. But he wrote several years ago a book based on kind of his ministry philosophy. He called it The Purpose Driven Life. It is the second most translated book in the world, second only to the Bible. You know, it has sold millions and millions of copies. Well, you know, sell a book of millions and millions of copies for $25, $30 a, a pop, and you're a millionaire pretty easily. So, well, uh, Warren has done very well on his book sales and, and other books as well. Now, a lot of ministers who do that become very wealthy. They change. They become very greedy, not just ministers, but, but ministers too, become very spoiled and greedy. They have mansions, planes, luxuries. They have a you know, crazy lifestyle. But Warren has overcome that temptation. In fact, he gives all of his salary back to his church. He doesn't take a salary, hasn't for many years. He's kind of a volunteer pastor. He drives a 12-year-old car. He's lived in the same house for 22 years. He doesn't own a boat or a jet. And the reason he can do that is because he's learned the secret of contentment. I, I don't know Rick personally. I'm sure he's not a perfect man. But I do know that he has a huge heart, not only for missions, but also for mental health issues. Their son took his life because he struggled with mental issues. He also has a heart for world poverty and for the AIDS crisis. And he pours millions of dollars into those things out there because he's learned to be content with what he has, and he's learned to be generous beyond that. Now, as I was thinking about this whole idea of contentment and feeling extremely guilty, like all of us probably should be in some level, as I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, but is there something missing? Is there, is there a level here of contentment that we do live in that we shouldn't? And here was my conclusion, is that a lot of Christians are discontent with the things that they should be content with. That is, things and money and possessions and life, you know, as we have. We should be content with life, but we are content about the things that we should be discontent with. And you're saying, well, what is it? I thought we were supposed to be content with everything. Here's what we're content with, but we probably shouldn't be, and that is our spiritual walk. 
our spiritual walk, a lot of us are good because what we want to be, we, we want to be right with God, but we want to be just, just a little right. We don't want to be crazy over this whole thing. We want to be cautious that we don't go overboard. You know, we, we are content where we are. As long as we're inside the gate, we feel like we're good, but that's not really what Jesus wants from us. He wants a lot more from that, from us, because you see, what we call this inappropriate content is complacency. And most of us are very complacent Christians, and we're spoiled Christians because, again, we have so much. Jesus told the story about a man who went on a journey, and while he was gone, he entrusted to the care of his servants various sums of money. And he gave them this, and he said, I want you to use this. This, this story parallels our lives. It parallels our lives to the plate that, that right now, you know, Jesus is in heaven preparing a place for us, and He's given us a lot of blessings. He's given us resources, He's given us opportunity, He's given us gifts, and He wants us to invest these in the world. And one day, whenever He comes back, He's going to hold us accountable for that. But in the parable that Jesus told, one of those servants was lazy and complacent, and he just buried this talent that he had until his master returned. And when the master came back, he held everybody's accountability, and he blessed those who were faithful. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. And he gave them much more. But this one guy who had done nothing, he took what he had given him away, and he punished him. Because that kind of contentment, that kind of complacency is not what the master is looking for. He wants an increase. He wants some initiative. He wants some growth. And that's what God wants in our lives as well. He wants us to use what we have here, and He wants us to grow. You know, our vision as a church is to move people on a simple journey toward Jesus. And that doesn't mean that we just want to move them to accept Christ. That's where it begins. But we want people to always be thinking about their next step. What does God want me to do? What is my next step on this journey? Because a journey is not, is not composed of just one step. A journey is composed of many steps. And so our goal as a church is to move people to become disciples committed followers of Christ who in turn are creating more disciples because of personal growth as well as investing in their lives. That's what God has called us to do. And then the, the journey, we are to be content not with where we are, but certainly content with the things that we have in life, and we use those things to glorify God. Now, Paul talks again about this secret of being content, and, and the secret, he says, is I don't want more, and I'm okay with how things are in life, even being in jail. I don't want more of what the world has to offer, but I want more of what Jesus offers. I am always, I'm greedy, wanting more about what Jesus wants to give me, and I want to grow in Him. I don't ever want to be satisfied where I am. In fact, listen to what it says here. This is in Philippians as well. Paul says, not that I've already obtained all this, or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You know, most of us would look at Paul and we would say, well, you're like some kind of super Christian. Man, if we could just be like Paul, we'd be, we'd be satisfied. But Paul said, I am not there. And I am always pressing to take hold. I'm straining toward what is ahead. I'm pressing toward the goal. I'm winning the prize. That is not exactly passive or complacent wording, is it? Even Paul, at his point in life, was stretching for more and more. And that's what God is calling from us as well. So let me wrap up this morning with four pieces of advice. 
Four simple practical things. Number one, be content, but never be complacent. Be content, but never, ever be complacent. God doesn't want you to stay where you are spiritually. God may want you to have less and do less, but he doesn't want you to stay where you are spiritually. Number two, want what you have. I mean, if there ever was a simple piece of advice, it's pretty good because all of us want something else. I guarantee we'd all write down what we want right now because this is on our wish list, maybe our Christmas list, whatever. We want this, but do we really want what we have? Can we say, I'm content with what I have. I'm good right where I am. Most of us can't say that. Be grateful and acknowledge that everything you have come from God and don't expect more things to make you more content. It simply does not work like that. I wish it did, but, but it just doesn't work like that. Number three, don't make comparisons. Don't compare yourself to someone else. It doesn't work because every time you do that, you'll come up short, you'll feel second rate, or you'll feel like you're deprived because none of us compare ourselves to people who have less. We just don't do it. We always compare ourselves to people who have more. So do not make comparisons and be content with what you have. Number four, accept your imperfections and the lacks in your life. Nobody's perfect. Very few people get everything that they want in life, and many people don't even get what they need in life. So wherever you are in life, you know, maybe you're in a, a, a lack of a relationship. You know, you might need to be content where you are right now in that. Maybe that'll change down the road, but wherever you are, learn to be content. If you're struggling without something, God knows that you have that need, and God is helping you get through it. Try to be content. Doesn't mean you try, don't try to better yourself, but be content where you are at this point in life. Accept your imperfections. Accept the fact that you're not perfect. If you are a control freak, if you are constantly worried about, you know, not matching up to your own expectations, maybe you just need to be content where you are and find peace and, and satisfaction in those things. But here's the big thing what I want to wrap up with. A lot of people are searching for something to satisfy them. People are looking for, that's how we're made. We're longing for that peace that's going to make us content. And we try many, many things. We try money. We try things. We try other people and relationships. Maybe it's sex we're, we're trying through. Maybe it's some sort of power. Maybe it's drugs, alcohol, some sort of stimulant, whatever it might be. But here's the thing. Those things never, ever work. They never, ever satisfy because God has made us with the inability to be contented with things, no matter how much we have. We see that in wealthy people's lives. If things made them happy, then people like Hughes and Hunt and Solomon, they would be the happiest, content people in the world. It doesn't work that way. Those things don't work. The only thing that will make us content and have peace is to fill that hole in our hearts that God has made. And you know what it's shaped like? It's shaped like God. And when we put him there and we put Christ in our lives, that hole is filled. And then we will find peace and contentment. Because as we sang a few moments ago, Christ is enough. He is enough. He's all that we need. And in him, we find our fulfillment. And then the song goes on to say, and that's why I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. And this morning, my hope is that you have decided to follow Jesus, that you put your faith and trust in him and that you're living for him, and you're not complacent with where you are. You're thinking of your next step, what God wants you to do next, and you're asking him for that. 
But if you're here and you've never made that decision to give your life to Christ, I'd love to have a conversation with you. I'll be up front after this. You can fill out one of the connection cards and put down, I want to talk to a minister, and I'll give you a call. But we would love to talk about the real source of peace in your life. Now, our invitation is going to be a little bit different this morning, or our closing time. Our worship team is going to come down on the stage here and uh, going to share together uh, and gather the group in. So we'll get some instruction on that in a moment. Uh, but I'm going to ask you, if you would, right now, just to stand up, and let's, uh, let's bow together and go to our Lord. Father, thank you for today. God, thank you that you made us uh, longing for more, because if, if we did not long for more, we would never discover Jesus. But God, also remind us that that longing is never going to be fulfilled in things, and that God, if we're going to live the dream, the, the life that you want us to live, then Father, we have to discover and accept that contentment can only be found in your way through Jesus. And Lord, that's my prayer for each person here today, that, that they would would search and be diligent in, in, uh, in seeking for truth and for that which satisfies, which is Jesus. And Lord, if they have not made that decision, then they would, would, would hurry to do that today. Lord God, we love you and we worship you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.